The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Listen to me, please, please, be calm. Listen to me, be calm and hear me out. You have been misled, and I myself cannot escape responsibility. But I have stood by and watched my friends and my neighbors have been sacrificed to the greed of the oracle. And I have said nothing. I've said nothing because I thought the time was not right. But I tell you today, the time is right. The time is now. The rationalist cause will be heard. I have returned to continue the fight. The rational, the right. No, the oracle is not right. You lie! Rationalists may not be right either. For a change, we are going to have a free and open forum to find out. Accurate knowledge is the true wealth of the world. I think we started some kind of revolution. It was bound to happen. We just nudged it along. It's their world. They're going to have to deal with it. Thomas Jefferson once said that politics is like the weather. Every so often you need a good storm to clear things out. You're not going to start quoting now, are you? Who's Thomas Jefferson? Big man in my world. Got his face on some of the money. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, April 23rd, 2015. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. No, it's not right wing, it's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Welcome to our show today where you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org or visit us at www.justrightmedia.org or follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes. There, that should keep Robert off my back this week. He's always reminding me that I always forget to mention these and he's always right. Until today, the pattern of history has been broken. Today's show touches on a number of topics, but really only one broad issue or theme. And I would say that's, you know, our addiction to government running our economy and some of the words we use in trying to figure out what the problem is and how we can fix things because we're using the wrong words to describe the problem. And that's one of the things I want to address today. From providing electricity to selling beer, providing education to monopolizing the cannabis pot market. Uh, you know, the, similarly, the addicts to government are complaining to that government about the very negative effects of everyone's addiction to government. Now, this past Monday, I actually uh, took out some time to listen to a complete variety of local talk shows, mainly because they were all talking about the same handful of issues and topics, 
that I was planning to talk about today, and I was wondering what they were all going to have to say about it. I listened to a couple of uh, DJs on AM 980s, you know, Devin, Devin Peacock, Andrew Lawton on CJBK. I listened to Tom McConnell and Andy Utman, and their common issues of the day were Hydro One, from the announced potential sale to the shocking planned rate increases, the so-called privatization of beer sales in the province, the 420 pot celebrations and protests that were held this past Monday, and the one that really got me curious, the Amit Chakma controversy. I was considering even adding a few other topics like the Uber issue, but, uh, but you know, after listening to the open line conversations I heard, my focus began to change. So forgive me if I bounce back and forth between these various topics, but I'm gonna, the, the theme is pretty much the same, plus a few other issues that will be touched upon during the show, and that will include poverty, wealth, unemployment, minimum wages, and of course, education. All of these topics, but really just one issue. And I guess I could put it this way, you know, we've all got a bad case of mono. <laughs> because if instead of a dialogue in which there were actually differing views on each side of a given topic or debate, all I've been hearing is a monologue. A monologue about monopolies, monopolies. When I listen to all of the local and not-so-local radio talk shows, I've sensed an increasing and, and desperate sense of frustration and outrage on the part of callers. It's almost becoming chronic, you know. It's, it's, it's interesting to observe. And now, of course, on the talk shows, it's worth noting that most, though not all, of course, radio talk show callers are what we might call people more on the right wing than on the left, though by no means is that a major t pattern. But they seem to know who the enemy is. They just don't seem to have any answers or solutions. And in a lot of ways, I don't know how I would explain it, but I'd say maybe they're overwhelmed by politics. They feel helpless in the face of all of this going on, and, and they, they really have no, no control. What can they do about their hydro bills? What can they do about the increasing cost of government, the taxes? They just can't get their heads around the fact that we Ontarians have actually elected the kind of government that we have. But at the same time, there's, uh, I think, a little more of a tragic side to this frustration, and that's some of the, what I have to call the utterly misguided ideas they express in, 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 in almost a blind sense that they're not aware of some of the most basic facts about the issues that they want to see resolved. And so that frustration against a process over which they seem to have no control just becomes a shouting match and that's what I'm hearing you know now I'm not trying to be a Sheldon Cooper here I'm very dumb and uninformed on a myriad of topic and interest trust me I just make it a habit never to publicly comment on something that I haven't researched or at least made myself aware of the basic facts and if I don't have the facts that I need I also try to make a point of letting my listeners or the people I'm talking to know that I'm operating in that vacuum and when you are aware of the facts, or even better, the bigger picture, the or, you know, on the essentials of an issue, it becomes very clear that most people make comments based on a lot of misinformation, disinformation, or simply on their own made-up, very linear theories about how governments and economies actually function. But even the misinformed and misdirected often, I think, have their hearts in the right place, if you want to put it that way. It's just that their ideas and suggestions for change are not the proven road to the ideal that they seem to be projecting. And so I'm hoping to ha put a bit of focus on that for us today. 
I think that what everyone's searching for is what we call here, you know, capitalism and freedom. Okay, that's basically the bottom line. But these concepts are a complete blur to most people. No different or worse than centralized government management using state ownership and, and control. They just don't see a big difference. Collectivism and tribalism are things that humanity has tried over and over again, always ending up in some calamity. As you've heard so many times before, you know, they say history repeats itself, almost as if that were a statement of resignation of some sort. But the one word missing from this whole conversation is a word that has not repeated itself in history, and that word is capitalism. Capitalism is the one thing in history that has not ever repeated itself, nor for that matter ever even really been fully realized in, in the sense of being an ingrained part of our culture. So we certainly can't blame capitalism for any of these monopoly problems, but people tend to do that. And that's one of the pieces missing from the whole conversation, too, is, th is the word capitalism. It's not in the conversation. When it is, it's being used incorrectly. And I'll be getting to that a little later in the show. But first, some broader comments about capitalism. Uh, capitalism in the history of mankind is not a rerun. Okay? The rise of capitalism was not a repeat of any of the history that preceded it. Remember, capitalism is a condition, like freedom. It's not a plan, it's not a system, even though it operates on certain immutable principles. For example, the law, the law of supply and demand. Principles can never be altered or changed, and when resisted or when politicians try to change them, well, bad stuff starts to happen somewhere. And this is reality's way of letting us know that we're being unreal or unreasonable or perhaps even both. You know, history is repeating itself, and it's worth noting that when people say that history repeats, aren't they always really referring to bad news or cataclysmic events in the context of what they're saying? If you take a look at history, you'll note that the longest period that the planet Earth had without major wars was during the rise of capitalism and world trade that began essentially with the British Empire and ended with the oncome of World War I. As the French statesman Frédéric Bastiat used to warn the socialists in both the right and left wings of his home country of France, when goods don't cross borders, armies will. Well, during the height of free trade, goods were crossing borders freely, and there were no wars. Quote, let those who are actually concerned with peace observe that capitalism gave mankind the longest period of peace in history, a period during which there were no wars involving the entire civilized world, from the end of Napoleonic Wars in 1815 to the outbreak of World War I in 1914, says Ayn Rand in her book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. So I guess if ever there were an event of history that we should repeat, <laughs> wouldn't you think? It's that period that the greatest peace that we achieved, you know, should, should be repeated. The greatest period of trade, the greatest growth of prosperity, never before an, you know, anticipated or, or even foreseen. And we certainly cannot refer to that period of history as being one since, you know, one that's being repeated since it was the first time in known recorded history that such a period ever existed, not before, not since. So in other words, it is not a principle that history repeats itself because we've got proof that that period of history it did not. Still not convinced? Well, if you're looking for glaring evidence of this truth, just look at the advances in scientific knowledge and technology that accompanied this one-time unique point in history. Whenever, you know, they were never before achieved in any other 
known recorded history. We have nothing on record. Go back as far as you please in history and you'll find no record of anything, for example, like the technology that we have today. Television? Are you kidding? Unheard of, undreamt of, even a couple hundred years ago. Uh, electricity, the automobile, toilets in our homes, running water, etc., etc. All the things we take for granted as if it were always so are the consequence of essentially this one-time unique condition which came to be known as capitalism and is incidentally also the best human economic condition for the environment because you'll discover that a government that operates on the principles of life, liberty, and property, which are not the principles of any form of collectivism or socialism, is always the best environmental protector. Governments that violate life, liberty, and property have the poorest living conditions, the dirtiest environments, and the most corrupt politicians. So, you know, no wonder even people like the Ayn Rand Institute's Yaron Brook expressed such amazement at how readily and willingly majorities of otherwise seemingly rational people will place themselves in a complete state of denial regarding the obvious proof that capitalism works. I mean, it's right there in front of us. So when we say that history repeats itself, what we're really saying, I think, is that we keep making the same mistakes, which is another way of saying that we collectively keep choosing the dark side of history, which leads us to poverty, debt, and deficit, rather than the bright light of reason, which leads to freedom and capitalism. I think we do this largely because the illusion of security has always trumped freedom and individual rights when offered to the masses by their leaders and governments. Here, when doing it today with the introduction of the Ontario uh, budget. And we also do it because it, sh it should come as no surprise to anyone that there are explicit enemies of capitalism and, as a natural consequence, enemies of freedom. Now, they're the ones who subvert our process of thinking by usurping and using the very important words and concepts that we need to use so that we ourselves will be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. And these words are being so misused that sometimes things just get more confusing. And I'll get into some of those examples after our coming break here. But this, again, is from the May, May 9th, 2012 broadcast of Uncommon Knowledge hosted by Peter Robinson. And here again is renowned economist Thomas Sowell commenting on how today's intellectual community has led his country, the United States, away from the principles upon which it was founded. So, why, I'm just still trying to get, get at this contrast between the growing role of, Amer of intellectuals in American life, which has taken place not only in our lifetime, but in the lifetime of somebody who's in college this very day. You can see it expanding over the last quarter of a century or so. Why should that be taking place now? Why should, the, why should intellectuals have a growing role, and why should the nature of intellectuals have changed? If you look at the founders, mm. Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, quite different characters and temperaments, these were both extremely well-read. John Adams was a Harvard man, mm. and yet you don't get what you get, I, I would argue, and I think you'd agree, but I put it to you, you get the sense over and over again, particularly in Adams. You get it in John in Washington. You certainly get it in the constitutional debates. It's the tragic vision of life. Oh, no question. Power is dangerous. We need to hem this in. We need to devolve as much power as we can to ordinary people. Now, why is it that the founders should have grasped that? And intellectuals today 
just don't see it at all. Well, first of all, these people did not make their living as intellectuals. Uh, they did not make their living even as politicians, most of them. Right. Most of them, had, they had day jobs. And when uh, the, the, the rebellion against Britain started, they, they put that aside for the, for the time being to go into politics and to try to write up a constitution and all those kinds of things. But they were not intellectuals in the sense in which I define it as people who earn their living uh, by producing a final product, which is simply ideas. Right. Segment three, intellectuals condescending. Intellectuals in society, quote, intellectuals give people who have the handicap of poverty the further handicap of a sense of victimhood. Yes. Close quote. Explain that, Tom. They intellectuals have a great tendency to see poverty as a great moral problem to which they have the solution. Now, the human race began in poverty, so there's no mysterious explanation as to why some people are poor. The question is, why have some people gotten prosperous? And in particular, why have some gotten prosperous to a greater degree than others? But everybody started poor. So poverty is not a mystery to be solved by intellectuals. Intellectuals have no interest in, and what creates wealth and what inhibits the creation of wealth. They are very concerned about the distribution of it, but they act as if wealth just exists somehow. So and it's only a question, it's like manna from heaven. It's only a question of how we split it up. And why should that be? Why shouldn't they find that question, at least intellectually, fascinating? Because it would destroy the whole vision that they have. If because it would lead to the answer of free markets. Well, it would say there are enormous numbers of reasons why people acquire the ability to create wealth, and they vary all over the world. And so if you find, for example, that in centuries past, Germans living in Eastern Europe uh, had much higher standards of living than the indigenous peoples of Eastern Europe, uh, intellectuals will say, well, the Germans have somehow oppressed the people of Eastern Europe. Right. Or the ones who are in, into genetic determinism will say the Germans were born uh, biologically superior to the people of Eastern Europe. But anyone with a knowledge of history would know that there are all kinds of reasons why Western Europe as a whole has far greater wealth producing capacity than Eastern Europe. But of course, that would then cut out the role of intellectuals. They would then have to do what David Hume did, which is where he, taught, he urged his fellow 18th century Scots to learn the English language because that would open up a whole world to them uh, that they would not have otherwise. Which leads to another quotation that I found very striking here, Tom, in Intellectuals in Society. Uh, part of this you've touched on. You write that although intellectuals pay a lot of attention to inequalities among racial and ethnic groups, Quote, seldom has this attention been directed toward how the less economically successful might improve themselves by availing themselves of the culture of others around them. Close quote. Now that is a very arresting formulation. Poor people can improve themselves by availing themselves of the culture of others around them. What do you mean by that? I mean that the same things which allow some other people to prosper can allow them to prosper if they take advantage of those same things. The Scots were a classic example. They were one of the poorest and most ignorant people on the fringes of European civilization in centuries past. 
But once they, for whatever reasons, began to educate themselves and especially to learn the English language, which became a passion, people all over Scotland, including Hume himself, were taking lessons in the English language. Hume's first language was Gaelic? He, he, I, I, I don't know if it was Gaelic, it was wh wh whatever. Whatever they spoke in those days, all right. Yeah, uh, uh, and, 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 with, and, and fr from the, about the middle of the 18th century to the middle of the 19th century, the leading intellectuals in Britain were Scots. Right. I mean, you had Adam Smith in economics, Hume's in human philosophy, uh, black in chemistry. Uh, you, you go through the whole list. And so they could do that. But th that was an extremely rare thing for an intellectual to say. Most intellectuals in most countries around the world see the issue as how those who are more prosperous should be brought down. Rather than how, and, and moreover, the people, people who are lagging should cling to their culture. I don't know how you're going to keep on doing what you've always done and get results that are different from what you've always gotten. You know that observation that Thomas Sowell just made is so deeply ingrained in our psyche that it's behind every uh, political discussion that we seem to have. And the conversations I heard on the radio this past week almost started sounding to me a bit like a third world conversation. The desperation people were expressing about saving money on their hydro bills. Why can't they, you know, buy, get cheaper beer and, and wine and, and more convenient in their stores? But, you know, you've heard Kathleen Wynne's uh, beer store announcement, which uh, Tom McConnell on his show called the BS announcement. They're apparently going to allow up to uh, 150, and I've heard, I hear, keep hearing different numbers, 150 or 300, pick, pick your number, grocery stores will be chosen to be able to sell uh, six packs or singles of beer. It's, it's not going to start until two years from now, which is very convenient because that's, you know, just before the next election, and they're going to add a new tax to each purchase. They're going to continue to set prices. And, and they're going to create a beer ombudsman to police this, you know, to represent the private sector versus the government, which is very curious because as they're doing, as they're talking about selling Ontario Hydro, the ombudsman of Ontario is complaining that he won't be able to be the ombudsman of Ontario Hydro anymore if they, quote, privatize it, which I'm not sure is even true. And, of course, they want to establish a $1 million beer cap on income for any single private outlet. Now... Anybody who thinks that's got anything to do with capitalism doesn't understand the word capitalism. In a way, businesses are always anti-capitalists when government gives them an opportunity to do so. And I think what's going on here is that the wind government is reacting to pressure to have more convenient sales of these products. By expanding the beer monopoly to the grocery stores, the Ontario government will now have another, say, 150 to 300 self-interest groups who will see themselves benefiting from the monopoly and who will no longer be on the other side of the issue. You know, they don't, they don't look out after the other guy. It's not a, an even playing field they're looking for. They just want to make sure they're on the field and that they got their piece of the pie. They'll now collude with the government to keep the other smaller competitors out of the market or force them to pay exorbitant taxes or fees to get a share of the beer monopoly. You see this everywhere. And, you know, the beer monopoly is one shared completely by private interests, foreign interests, and yet our government continues to maintain the beer monopoly. And, you know, there are those who believe that the beer monopoly once served a legitimate purpose as if the real purpose in the past was any different from the purpose today. It's a beer cap, a trade cap on the market. Meanwhile, on the Ontario hydro front, Kathleen Wynne's been talking about selling the, 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 the uh, you know, Ontario hydro, hydro one, uh, effectively accomplishing the same thing that she's doing with the beer stores. 
And I heard Tom Adams, who's the expert on, on electricity in the province, speaking with Tom O'Connell on, on the show, and he's talking about how new electricity tax is coming. Hydro One is already leveraged to the hilt. The debt is being transferred to new owners. $35 billion in debt, Ontario Hydro. The debt is growing. It's not falling. And he thinks that Hydro One is becoming insolvent. So despite the debt retirement charge, the debt is growing. You know, what's been retired, I think, is the idea of competition in the marketplace. And even more worrisome, again, the public, including many of the people who see themselves on the right, do not want to see Ontario Hydro sold. They want to continue the public monopoly under the belief that somehow that'll keep prices lower. This is so bizarrely based on economic superstition, it's almost beyond belief. You know, then there was this expert commentator I heard on CTV News, CTV News on the subject. Right after saying that our electricity needs less government and more private involvement in the market, he went on to assure Ontarians that the Ontario government planned to retain at least 40% share in Ontario uh, in Hydro One and that it would protect Ontarians for hi higher, from higher prices thanks to price controls and price caps the government would impose. Again, more economic superstition. Where do these experts get their evidence of these claims from? It's never true. Look now. The prices are going up now. Then there's Terence Corcoran, who's among my favorite writers and editorialists at the National Post, but who, through the language and words he uses on this issue, is, in my humble opinion, just helping confuse the issue. From his April 16th commentary, No Sale for Hydro, uh, for Hydro One sham, he says. The great march of state capitalism took another warp turn in Ontario with the announcement that Kathleen Wynne's liberal government plans on privatizing up to 60% of Hydro One. It's about time, he writes. Oops, did I say privatizing? Sorry, it appears I've got that wrong. No privatization here, folks. The word does not appear anywhere in the 38-page 38 pile of contradictory verbiage within the final report from Ed Clark and the Premier's Council on Government Assets. Nothing gets privatized in Ontario, not even wine sales, he says. Then there's another one of my favorite writers, Anthony Fury, whose April 20th London Free Press editorial, Sud Sales, a start, but privatization, ultimate target, already had my blood pressure up. He writes, Wynne's announcement barely moves Ontario forward, but at least she's allowing some sales to the private sector. Good luck getting rid of these control boards, though that should be the goal. The correct response is to privatize the whole sector, but no politician has a stomach for that. Well, that's what he's, he wrote. Now, generally speaking, I, of course, empathize with the sentiment expressed in both of these editorials by Corcoran and Fury, but their choice of words in describing the nature of the problem is not quite, quite correct, and therefore, any solutions based on these terms, um, state capitalism and privatization, are utterly destructive in terms of pointing us in the right direction towards the right solution. State capitalism is an oxymoronic term in the realm of politics. Capitalism means a separation of economics from the state, which is precisely the prescription we need to resolve everyone's competing interests. What Corcoran really means is a state monopoly on a business or a trade, which would better be described as state socialism if you want to keep your definitions true and consistent. Then there's the word private or privatize, which is so far off the mark as to boggle my mind when I hear conservatives talking about this. We need to privatize the sale of beer in Ontario, they say. Well, the beer store monopoly is already private. Hello? It's, it's a foreign-owned private monopoly, no less. And the grocery store, as Wynn is talking about selling beer in, is also private. You know, and 
so <laughs> it's, it's completely private is all about ownership. The distinction between public and private is that public means government ownership and private means individual or corporate ownership. Under statism, when government both owns and controls a specific sector of the economy, we call that communism or fascism, when a government does, or, or communism rather, or uh, socialism. But when a government does not own but only controls the private sectors of the economy, that's properly called fascism. Ownership of that sort can be an illusion. Under capitalism, the government cannot set prices, establish trade caps, or monopolies. Under capitalism, the government must act as the referee of a free of government setting prices and trade cap monopolies market. That's what it should be. Then I heard that Ontarians are apparently the owners of Hydro One, as expressed by a commentator on CTV again. And as I keep saying over and over again, your share isn't worth the paper it isn't written on. Public ownership is a fiction. If you really had a share, you'd be able to sell it, buy more shares from other willing shareholders. Not a single one of us has a share in Hydro One other than to be forced to share in the misery of financing the true shareholders. All of the private interests, from Samsung to London Hydro to, yes, to all the private interests pulling the levers of government. This is why we need capitalism, to get rid of all those private interests posing as public interest advocates. Yet the conversation continues in this vacuum of, uh, of misdefinitions. And, you know, it's true that the public gets irate when there's talk about selling crown assets. They just don't want to do it. But that's the whole issue. And then there's a belief that there's a certain things that are essential services as a reason to justify a government monopoly. You know, the essential service that we need from government is rational governance, which is the one thing we don't get by practicing irrational economics. It is the monopolization of the economy by governments of all stripes that's at the root, even of what I think people perceive as the increasing income gap between rich and poor. Of course, the public blames capitalism and big business and competition, and in doing that, they continue to repeat the history that they so fear, and to live the poverty they so fear. Now, when we return after our upcoming break, we'll be shifting our attention to the controversy surrounding um, Western University President Amit Chakma, which has a lot of people left scratching their heads about what the fuss is really all about. Some people disgusted about how much people are getting paid. But first, here's more from economist Thomas Sowell in conversation again with Peter Robinson on some surprising black and white statistics about unemployment and minimum wage laws south of the border. Two quotations, Tom. An editorial in the New York Times, quote, racial stereotypes still wreak havoc with the job possibilities of young black men, close quote. Quotation number two, Thomas Sowell in Intellectuals and Society, quote, Black unemployment rates were lower than those of whites as long ago as 1890, close quote. And in 1930 as well. And in 1930. First of all, black unemployment was lower decades ago mm -hmm. before the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. before the New York Times began editorializing on, the, uh, on black poverty. How can that have been? It, it shows, among other, well, the minimum wage law is one, one huge uh, uh, factor. 1930 was also the last year uh, when there was no federal minimum wage law. If you look at the unemployment rate of black teenagers in 1948, 1949, it is a fraction 
of what it has been in any of recent decade. Uh, and 1949 was a recession year. So the black teenage unemployment rate in 1949 was a fraction of what it was in even the most prosperous years of the 1990s. And this is because the, the federal minimum wage said you must play, pay every worker at least this much. Yes. And there, when there was no minimum wage, kids, everybody, but particularly you're talking now about black teens, yeah. could get paid. Whatever. A dollar fifty an hour. See, see but the other thing, but they could get employment. They could yes. start learning skills. They could get reach the first rung on the ladder, so to speak. Yes, that's what's, right. and people move up very quickly. I mean, McDonald's has over a hundred percent turnover a year. People say he's out. You know, he's out flipping hamburgers. Yes, he's flipping hamburgers in January. It does not mean he's going to be flipping hamburgers in December. Uh, somewhere, he's how to get to work on time? How he, to get a, that's right. And he's, and he's not going to be. He's going to start start up the ladder. Right. Uh, but the uh, what was different about the late 1940s was the minimum, the federal minimum, the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 specified what the minimum wage would be. The runaway inflation of the 1940s made that number meaningless. So for all practical purposes, inflation had repealed the minimum wage law. I see. Thank God I, I was a teenager in those years, uh, and you know when I started out my first full-time job as a Western Union messenger, uh, my my starting pay was 50% above the federal minimum wage because inflation had made the federal minimum wage meaningless. And so under those conditions, in 1948, black 16 and 17 year olds had, had an unemployment rate under 10% and slightly less than that of white teenagers the same age. Now as you come in and the liberals say, no, we've, we've got to catch up with inflation. Starting in 1950, they escalated the minimum wage regularly. And then you begin to see these horrendous rates of unemployment among black teenagers. Count Hodo, I am determined not to quit this city. Not in its most urgent hour of need. The next few days and weeks will test the faith of all of us. I pray to God Almighty that not one of us is found wanting in either courage or belief. Yours is a heavy burden, Count Otto. You have many Christian souls in your care. I carry this burden with a light heart, knowing I shared with our Lord and with your Highness. But I must ask your Highness if you have appealed to your brother, the Eastern Emperor, for help. He could surely provide an army for our relief. I will not ask either of my brothers for help. I must prove myself better than my brothers, Count Odo. And these Northmen have provided the opportunity. Defeat them. And I will be seen as a worthy successor to my grandfather, to the great Charlemagne. You know, I haven't yet had a chance to watch it, but that item was from the TV series The Vikings. It was suggested to me by Robert Vaughn when I told him about 
the history of the university that I managed to dig up. Turns out Charlemagne was one of the major focal points that led to the modern day idea of the university, and we'll be hearing a little bit more about that a little later on in the show. But first I have to comment on a few things about the controversy surrounding Amit Chakma here at Western University. Most of the public thinks the controversy is about his so-called double dip in pay, which I think is nothing more than a distraction. And I have to admit it wasn't easy to scratch the surface of what I think is really behind this issue. Uh, Chakma has recently survived a non-confidence motion. That was a thing that interested me. And the first thing that struck me immediately after the vote was uh, just, just an impression, the rudeness of those people opposed to Chakma, even after having failed on the non-confidence motion that they wanted. Immediately after the vote was taken, the losing side began protesting and chanting, what do we want? Just resign. The fact that those wanting Chakma to resign now had some objective evidence that they were in some minority Continuing the campaign as if no vote took place sounds like someone who's, uh, you know, abiding by the, not abiding by the rules of the game that he, in, he or she insists on playing. And since when is it that what we want, emphasizing the we, is grounds for any kinds of motion? What do you want? Uh, and I, I couldn't really find out, at least in the major news media, other than wanting him to resign and complaining about the level of his pay. In addition to what print news I had on the topic, I Google searched everything I could about Chakma and still found it very difficult to sink my teeth into what the fuss is really all about. Those with complaints seem to speak very vaguely and in general emotional terms, which is not helpful either to my understanding, their position, or to their position itself, whatever that might be. By all accounts, from what I've read, and I'm, you know, argue with me if you like, but this is what I found, Chakma has had a great reputation in general. And no great leader or administrator in any field does not have detractors, but that doesn't address the issue. CTV News and the London Free Press, uh, I, I couldn't find any real hard information about the issue, focusing on, you know, they're just focusing on his salary, which to me is a complete non-issue, unless you want to make it about <laughs> the enviers, enviers and complainers. That's a whole separate issue, and there's a lot to complain about there. But the only hint at what might be going on that I found in the free press was the following very short quote from April 18th. Uh, quote, Michael Strong, the highly visible dean of Western University's medical school, is angry Chakma took double pay last year and deeply concerned the university had to become a divisive place where money disproportionately flows to those researching science, technology, engineering, and mathematics while others go without. We have a broken system, a university that's moving into the haves and have-nots, he said. So that prompted me to go online to see what more I could find out about Chakma's philosophy of education and his priorities for education, which is what has to be at the heart of this issue, beyond any salary issues. And what I found in this regard was actually very little, but I did find this. Apparently, back in 2011, Chakma was appointed as a member of the advisory panel for Canada's international education strategy commissioned by the government of Canada. And basically this was an advisory panel named on October 13, 2011 with a mandate to make recommendations on a strategy to maximize economic opportunities for Canada in international education. And Amit Chakma was on this board, on this uh, on this board, and it's been part of his um, mandate to do what he is doing now. 
And I'm reading here from the advisory panel, Government of Canada. They recognize that much of the demand for the international education will come from developing and emerging, emerging economies, countries with relatively young demographics and, in some cases, inadequate educational capacities. Based on this reality, the opportunities for Canada to strengthen its international leadership in international education can best be realized by aligning those efforts with key partners, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So basically, I'm looking at their stats here, and you know, Canada reaps reaps about almost nine billion dollars of revenue just from the foreign students who come to the country to attend colleges and universities here. Ontario gets three point five billion of that. One hundred eleven thousand one hundred seventy one foreign students in the province as of last year. And they're looking to attract more students from countries like Brazil, China, India, Mexico, North Africa, and the Middle East, and Vietnam, in addition to the ones they're already serving from France, the UK, Germany, Japan, Korea, and the US. So with regard to educational priorities, that was really the only major essential issue I could find. So I wondered if this had anything to do with the controversy because nothing was being said about this in the free press or the local radio stations or on CTV. So, the Western Gazette, to the rescue. And this is, by, uh, this is posted by Ian Bokoff in uh, the March 30th uh, Western Gazette with the headline, Western Faces Backlash to Chakma's Salary Payouts. And he points, here, points out here that... Um, where is he going here? Oh, yeah. Shirak Shah, chair, chair of the Board of Governors, explained the lump sum of cash was part of Chakma's contract. He added that Chakma's $440,000 annual salary has been frozen since the first year of his contract and will continue to be frozen for the duration of his term as president, ending in 2019. Now, Chakma accrues basically two and a half months of administrative leave ev for every year of his contract which made him entitled to that one year's worth of leave at the expiry of his first five-year term, which was in June 2014. Shaw said it was, quote, mutually decided that it would be beneficial to the university, end quote, that Chakma would continue in an active leadership role over the past year. And, of course, um, they had a meeting, and we all know what's happened there. And then he says, Says, uh, Shaw said the university has made a number of strides over Chakma's first term, including increasing international enrollment, having the highest entrance average among Ontario universities, and one of the highest student retention, graduation, and unemployment rates among Canadian universities. If you look at the incredible accomplishments that we set forth prior to five years ago and where we are now, I think we should step back as a campus and be proud of where Western has gone over the last five years. I think we've had some exemplary leadership, he said. And uh, Keith Marnock, Western's media relations director, said if Chakma had taken his leave, a possibility was for an interim president to be appointed, and then you'd be making the double payment anyway. I think you have to look at the continuity of leadership, Shaw said. To break the stride in all of the efforts Western has going on would be a challenge for us. And then we have, uh, now who's talking here? Now then there was Sam, Sam Trosco, a professor at the Faculty of Information and Media Studies, and he was commented on the non-confidence vote and uh, said it needed to be done. He says, excessive executive compensation of this magnitude is simply unacceptable in the public sector. Um, and again, that's an issue, isn't it? Is the university really a public sector or is it a private sector being fed on the public dollar? 
And he says, I think if people take a look at both history and its peer com compatriots, I think that they'll hopefully see its fair compensation, Shaw said. This is a consistent clause available within the academic environment. As part of his contract, Chakma lives also rent-free at Gibbons Lodge, a university-owned property, receives a car, a membership in a local private pro club, and one month of vacation annually. I stand by the decisions we made. I think we've got an outstanding leader here on campus, Shaw said. I do hope we take some time to take a look at the facts as opposed to the emotion. Now, I looked at some of the top salaries of administrators. Now, Chakma showed up at 924000 this year because, of course, that's double his normal. But he's not the only one getting these salaries. Uh, for example, uh, the School of Medicine and Dentistry Dean Michael Strong gets 462000 If he had taken his leave of absence, he would have made more than Chakma made this year. And then there's another article in the Gazette, posted by Ian Bokhoff again, um, talking about, he said, he f where he's referring to Chakma speaking at a meeting, and he, and he says, uh, this was also posted April 11th, quote, Chakma said he has focused too much on the external matters of the university, fundraising and building its international presence. Never mind, that's what the Board of Governors has ordered him to do, and by most measures, he's been very successful at. And he spoke briefly about the toll the controversy has taken on him and his family. For those that know him, he didn't need to say it. His active movement, his, the jokes and commanding demeanor were all gone. This was a man broken and beaten down by the past two weeks. A man whose world was shattered in the exercising of his contractual right. A man who previous to Friday, March 27th, had heard nothing but how great he is how he's among the top tier of his peers and a nationally, internationally known le leader. You know, Chakma finished his speech and the floor was, astonishingly to me, he, he writes, opened to question. Uh, and then senator after senator got up to express their disappointment, not in the fact that Chakma's paid so much, but in how he has led the university, how he personally snubbed those working for them, how he ignored them. Now, this is interesting. Yet as soon as Chakma's report and the Q&A was done, they all left before the most important document for the university drafts each year, the budget was debated and ultimately passed. For all the talk about how little teacher assistance, research assistance, contract, academic staff, etc. paid, um, the cuts to facul faculties, their ire was reserved for Chakma when the things they were truly upset about are relatively unrelated to him. In the end, he has to answer for everything, but that doesn't mean he controls everything. The budget's prepared by all of the administration, and there are other administrators who have more direct power over these things than Chakma. So I guess uh, that's the lesson to be made. You know, it's not about him. Just follow the money, they say. And at the root, it's all about redistributing the wealth in a more egalitarian way, though there aren't too many specifics on this. What I see at this point in my overview is that Chakma has been focusing on the hard sciences and the subjects and such subjects and less on the social sciences and humanities, which brings us back full circle, back to the ideas uh, of education itself. Now, this brings us back to the whole issue of Charlemagne, who we heard of early, earlier in our segment today. And he was Charles the Great, King of the Franks, and subsequently the Emperor of the West, was born in 742, and on Christmas Day, 800, he was crowned and proclaimed Caesar and Augustus by Leo III. And my Universal World Reference Encyclopedia notes that Charlemagne was a friend of learning. He attracted the most distinguished scholars to his court and established an academy in his palace. He invited teachers of language and math from Italy to the principal cities of the empire and founded schools of theology and the liberal sciences. Uh, 
Now, except for the historical time and context in which Charlemagne's Academy existed, his objective sounded very much like Canada's international strategy. So here again, what we'll be hearing is from, um, this one's from Professor Daniel Robinson, who we heard from last week, speaking on the idea of university. Here he is. I would be disinclined to refer to any age in the West as dark after 800 AD, because at 800, Charlemagne takes center stage. It is regrettable that we don't spend more time in our teaching on Charlemagne and on precisely what he accomplished. The record here is spotty, and of course so much legend surrounds Charlemagne that sometimes it's quite difficult to tease out the fact from the epic. He's born in 742, his birthplace uncertain. Charlemagne would succeed Coloman in 771 as king of the Germanic Franks. He was a great and good Christian man. We're all taught that in school. I don't recall having been taught that all of his five wives were also good Christians. His administration focused on the needs of the poor and the protection of the church. His kingdom was divided into counties, each jurisdiction with its bishop and mayor, with emissaries from his court responding to him regularly on the state of security in each region. His capitulara missorum was a royal mandate that secured protections not seen again until Magna Carta three centuries later. Here's a document and here's a king guaranteeing certain protections for the people. We're getting very close to the idea of, of rights, perhaps not the American Bill of Rights, but uh, again, not bad for 800. It was in 787 that a truly amazing order was issued under the heading Capitulara de Literis a Calandus, requiring the clergy to use their facilities to teach reading and writing to members of the community. These are the words that matter most in this Capitulara. Quote, Take care to make no difference between the sons of serfs and freemen so that they may come and sit on the same benches to study grammar, music, and arithmetic. For this, of course, teachers are needed, and Charlemagne will recruit them from England and Ireland, the latter really saving civilization by preserving the best of the classical sources. And he obtains a very good Latinist and a great man from Britain. Good and largely forgotten Alcuin, born about 735 and with Charlemagne among the most influential figures in the restoration of scholarship in the Western world. The palace school was at Aachen, which was Charlemagne's favorite court, and it wasn't long after Alcuin's arrival there in 782 that the king and his wife and sister sat as his students. Needless to say, the entire nobility of the realm got the message, and soon it was widely understood that learning itself was a source of status. By the time of his death, schools at every level and throughout this now vast Western Empire were staffed by Alcuin's former pupils. 
Thanks to the preservation of classical scholarship by the Irish of Iona and their kindred spirits in Britain, there were foundational subjects available to these teachers. The modest abbey schools now would benefit from instruction by informed minds and a carefully crafted curriculum. Alcuin the Latinist and classicist realized that the way you pull diverse peoples together is under the blanket of a culture of learning. The basic subjects, the three comprising the trivium, grammar, rhetoric, and logic, would evolve and expand over the decades and centuries following the era of Charlemagne and his trusted educator. In time, some of these abbey schools became so popular that monasteries would form near them, occupied by the teaching orders. Now, this is a long, variegated, and wonderful story told all too briefly here. It is sufficient to say that in that course of time, still other subjects were added, such that by the 12th century, there will be seven, the trivium and the quadrivium, the other four being arithmetic, music, geometry, and astronomy. And these come down to us as what? They come down as the seven liberal arts. And the Abbey schools are now appearing in a rather different manifestation. First at the great cathedral in Paris, where as a result of an application to Rome, the assembly of students is constituted as something called a universitas. Now I do want to pause at this point and say something about this word. We all refer to colleges and universities, the collegium and the universitas, and we generally think of uh, deans and at least in America at least 25 vice presidents, etc., etc. The term universitas refers to what actually begins as a, a guild of students assembled for the purpose of, not only the purpose of deriving instruction from a good faculty, but being able to bring some pressure to bear to make sure that the education they get is a good one. So what we have now is the founding of the university, at least in the modern sense in which we would talk about universities. It is true that Bologna and Salerno earlier were teaching specialized subjects in law and medicine, but here at Paris we have what today's academic probably would recognize as a, as a liberal arts university. And so there it began, the idea of university, and it's very similar to what's going on today. In the last segment of the show, I just have a very f brief comment on what happened this past Monday with the 420 um, protests about pot over all across the country. Anyone who's a longtime regular listener to this show probably already knows where we stand on the issue of pot prohibition. We've devoted complete broadcasts to demonstrate why such prohibitions are hypocritical, illog illogical, a violation of individual rights, all the rest of it. And I don't want to repeat all of those arguments, at least today. But this past Monday, the annual nationally organized cannabis protest celebrations were held. And as protests go, I have to say the one in London was a bit of a bust, thanks in part to the stance taken by London police, and also in part on the very unprofessional and repulsive tactics employed by the thankfully very few demonstrators in Victoria Park. Um, 
you know, some of them, from what I heard from the live coverage, was that they were just in the face of the police. And as Steve Garrison pointed out at the event, he was there. He said uh, he recognized one of the protesters as a professional protester who was also protesting at the Cosby event earlier this year. Apparently, they were really in the faces of the police officers there and were hurling F-bombs and obscenities of all kinds. And, you know... Behavior is totally at odds with the stereotype of cannabis users. And certainly, on the radio shows, I didn't really hear a lot of serious comment, comments on the issue. They were all, you know, taking a Cheech and Chong approach to the issue. A lot of stoner jokes and some negative publicity about what might have been a good cause. Um, there was not a single commentary for any talk show I heard or any callers who went anywhere near the issue, namely that being arbitrarily fined, penalized, or jailed for the offense of possessing, buying, selling, smoking, growing cannabis, or whatever, that's the issue. Everyone just talking about the drug, cannabis, pot, in very stereotypical terms, and in terms of whether it's good or bad for you. I don't think that's even the issue. The issue is, do you put people in jail for possessing it? It's not about the drug. The issue is about putting people in jail, and when will we ever get around to doing the right thing on that issue? Mark Emery made uh, some interesting comments, uh, basically saying, you know, he was on CTV News, and um, he seemed very up about this whole thing. He thinks right now that there's a majority on his side of the issue. And, of course, uh, when asked about what he learned from his five years in prison, he said, it taught me a lot about the U.S. criminal justice system and about the absurdity of sending people away for five years, 10 or 20, for no particular purpose whatsoever. I'm not a bad person. I didn't hurt anyone. Marijuana use is a great thing for millions and millions of North Americans, he said. Even if you don't like pot or people who smoke it, there's no, that's no reason to put someone in jail, he said, and I agree with him on that point. A lot of other things he said that I'm afraid I didn't quite agree with. But he predicted that pot would be legalized by the end of this year because it's happening everywhere else and Canada can't afford to be left behind. I heard that said by a number of commentators. Personally, I don't think we need to legalize anything when it comes to cannabis. We just need to end prohibition of the use, sale, or possession of any amounts. In Canada, you know what legalize means? It means monopolize. Doing that would in no way prevent us from continuing to police any kind of behavior that would threaten life, liberty, or property, that is, getting rid of prohibition. But it would put a crimp in the various government-sanctioned plans for a pot monopoly that's already in the process of being set up. Well, another monopoly to come. We'll undoubtedly revisit that issue again, because the bottom line on pot is always this. We can either let the pot go up in smoke, or we can choose to let our freedoms go up in smoke. That's it for another week. Join us again next week as we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see ya. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. All right, Ms. Jensen. Uh, before we begin, may I offer you a refreshment? Water, coffee, tea, a marijuana cigarette? No thanks, I'm fine. Now, are you sure? Everyone's smoking them. I think they're the best. I don't do drugs. Excellent. Yeah, that was a ruse. They're not the best. Physics is the best. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, coffee was also an unacceptable choice.